So I'm going to ask that you open God's Word now to John chapter 6. And as we continue in our series that we've entitled Hit, Reset, Seeing Our Dead Ends as Divine Opportunities. And today we come upon a passage that is so remarkable and so awesome. And I look so forward today to our time together in God's Word. Now we've seen three miracles thus far. We have seen Jesus turn water into wine. We have seen Jesus heal from a distance a nobleman's son. And we've seen Jesus heal a lifelong paralytic. And with each of these, we've seen dead end upon dead end. And we have seen how God, through the power of Jesus Christ, changed those dead ends into divine opportunities. And And John has listed these seven signs or miracles for a reason. Now, we've told you week in and week out, these aren't all of the miracles that Jesus did, but they're the highlights. They're the top seven that John brings to us as his remembrance of the earthly ministry of Jesus. And he gives us these seven signs for a reason. In fact, in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, we are told that while there were many, many other signs that Jesus would do in the company of his disciples and many others, that these seven were written that people might believe in Jesus, that you and I might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that in believing, we might find life in him. Now, there's a twofold thesis in those verses. First of all, one of the things that we want to do each and every week is introduce people to Jesus. Maybe those who have never had much of an involvement with Jesus prior to this, and we want to introduce Jesus to you. Maybe you're coming on to this broadcast for the first time. Maybe you're hearing about Jesus and the things that Jesus did for the first time, and our goal and our desire is that you would believe in him, that you would put your faith, your trust, and your hope in him, and that you would receive eternal life by confessing your sins to him and trusting him that he is the Lord and Savior of all. But John tells us that there is a sanctifying process uh, that is going on with this belief. That yes, to believe in Jesus is that one time where we put our faith and trust in him. But he says that you might know that believing is what will give you the life that we're looking for. And that's a big focus of our series. That's the sanctifying element of it. That as Christ followers, we would be reminded no matter how difficult our circumstances are, no matter how big our dead ends are around us, That whether it's relational or financial, physical, spiritual, emotional dead ends around us, that we as Christ followers would be reminded that true life in this world is found in an ongoing and growing faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And that's a big element of what our current miracle that we're going to look at today is going to teach us about. And so with that, let's turn our attention and we are going to learn of what God is going to do through his son, Jesus Christ, in addressing the impossible. Now we come to John chapter 6. 
And John chapter 6 is a special place in John's heart. In fact, it's a special place in all of the disciples' hearts. In fact, this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, is the only miracle that is recorded in all of the Gospels. Let me ask you, when you get together with family and lifelong friends, is there a certain experience or certain story that every time you guys all get together, you tell that story? It's one of those stories that everybody remembers where they were at and what they were thinking when the different elements of that story took place. And before you know it, there's a whole big discussion reminiscing about what you were doing and what so-and-so said or what so-and-so did in that moment of that remarkable story. You see, the feeding of the 5,000 for the disciples is just that story. It's one of those events, it's one of those times that everybody played a part in it. And everybody had a story to tell surrounding the greater and grander story that was taking place. Well, John, having his opportunity in the sixth chapter, tells the story like this. After this, Jesus went across Lake Galilee, or Lake Tiberias, as it is also called. large crowd followed him because they had seen his miracles of healing the sick. Jesus went up a hill and sat down with his disciples. The time for the Passover festival was near. Jesus looked around and saw that a large crowd was coming to him. Where can we buy enough food to feed all these people? He said this to test Philip. Actually, he already knew what he would do. For everyone to have even a little, it would take more than 200 silver coins to buy enough bread. Another one of his disciples, Andrew, who was Simon Peter's brother, said, There is a boy here who has five loaves of barley bread and two fish. They will certainly not be enough for all these people. Make the people sit down. There was a lot of grass there, so all the people sat down. There were about 5,000 men. Jesus took the bread gave thanks to God.
distributed to the people who were sitting there. When they were all full, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces left over. Let us not waste a bit. So they gathered them all and filled twelve baskets with the pieces left over from the five barley loaves which the people had eaten. Seeing this miracle that Jesus had performed, the people there said, Surely this is the prophet who was to come into the world. Jesus knew that they were about to come and seize him in order to make him king by force, so he went off again to the hills by himself. What an incredible scene that was. Now, John chapter 6 comes on the heels, of course, of John chapter 5. And we learned about John chapter 5 as Pastor David walked us through what it was for this lifelong paralytic to be healed, but we know that's only part of the story because as John chapter 5 continues, in the latter part of John chapter 5, we see that there are some who believe in the miracle power, in the supernatural power of Jesus Christ. But remember, the theme of belief and unbelief in John's gospel is the thesis. And so John starts talking about that there's this ever-growing amount of people who don't believe. Isn't that true when each and every one of us in the world encountered Jesus? That there's one of two ways we're going to go. We're either going to believe him or we're going to turn away in a disbelief or unbelief. And so Jesus begins to uh, argue and, and debate with those religious leaders that were coming up with reasons not to believe him. And yet, what we're going to learn at the beginning of John chapter 6, as it opens up, it says, after this, Jesus went away to another side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and it says, and a large crowd followed him. And so what John is saying is, yes, there were people that did not want to believe in Jesus, and they were a part of the religious establishment. But what we see as John continues to tell his story in his gospel is that Jesus is now being followed by an ever-growing group of people. Now, we're going to be told here in the text that this number is more than 5,000 men and countless women and children who would be a part of following. And the reason why they're following, we are told, is because they saw the signs, the miracles that Jesus did and what he was doing for the sick. Jesus was creating 
an entourage, a following, not because he intended to do that, but because people were beginning to see him and beginning to wonder about, who is he? Could this be the Messiah that the prophets have foretold about? And what begins to happen is Jesus is given yet another opportunity to prove his greatness because of the problem the crowd brings. The text tells us that the problem is is that they have come to hear Jesus. Now, uh, one of the other gospel writers say that that this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 takes place later in the day. And so Jesus has been teaching and preaching, we are told, and, and later in the evening, what we have is people getting hungry. And we are told that uh, the first way that we can address this problem to alleviate the situation, the disciples say in one of the other Gospels, send them home. Let them deal with their problem on their own. But John tells us that there are two other ways that the disciples think they can alleviate the problem. And the first one that comes up, besides them just sending everyone home, is that what they would do is Jesus asks Philip a question, and he says, hey, what do we got to do to feed these people? And Philip gives an answer. Notice in the text the answer that Philip gives is he says it would take 200 denarii and that still would not be enough uh, bread for each of them. And so what Philip is saying is, listen, I have figured out what it's going to take, Jesus. So yeah, I get it. You want to take care of these people. You're filled with compassion and you want to take care of them. But I have figured out, I've put together a Google spreadsheet, and it tells me it's going to take more than 200 denarii to give everybody just a little piece of bread. Now, I want to stop there for a moment and, and give some life application to that. How often is it when a problem comes that we are more about formulating a solution than putting faith in the God of the universe? The answer for Philip is standing right in front of him. Jesus is the answer. But instead of seeing Jesus as the answer, Philip finds himself formulating the answer, and, and that formulation still comes up as not being good enough. He says the following, 200 denarii won't do the trick. Now what he's saying is, is I think even more significant, 200 denarii was about the yearly salary of a common laborer. And I, I imagine that uh, the fishermen and, and the craftsmen that, that were following Jesus, they were common laborers. What Philip is saying is, I could work a year and I wouldn't come up with the number. This is an impossible situation. And so we see that and, and, then, and then we get another response and that is from Andrew. Now, Andrew is a little-known disciple. In fact, the most well-known thing about Andrew is that he's Simon Peter's brother. Some of you live in families where you are known because you're related to somebody. That's Andrew. And what Andrew does is Andrew's a connector of people to Jesus. He himself was the one that connected Peter to Jesus. He was all about getting people 
to Jesus. What an awesome ministry for all of us to have, that we would connect people to Jesus. Now, what we learn about Andrew is Andrew, once again, is doing what he is so well at doing and so good at doing, and that is bringing people to Jesus. He brings somebody with him, a little boy. And he brings this little boy who has a little meal, and he brings it to Jesus and says, I know this isn't going to take care of it, but surely Jesus can do something with it. You see, the difference between Philip and Andrew is that Philip focused in on the problem, while as Andrew focused in on the potential God brings to any situation. So Philip, he says, there's no way, it's an impossible situation. Andrew says, I've seen Jesus turn water into wine. I know Jesus has multiplying capability, and so I'm going to bring him what is needed. Even though it's small, and even though I don't know how it's all going to work out, and I know this isn't going to be enough, I know in the hands of Jesus there's potential for something greater to take place. And what we learn from this is something so important in our day and age. And that is the first point of today's message. There is no problem too big for Jesus to solve. You see, Jesus asked the disciples what they would do with the problem. That's a great question. When when people uh, have a problem, it is always good for us to stop and say, what would you do? And that's what Jesus does. And the disciples say, let's send them on their way. And Philip says, hey, I made a formulation and it's still not going to work. We don't have enough money. And Andrew comes and he sees potential in what God is doing through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And he says, I've got an idea. Jesus did all of this, it is said, as a way to test to test their faith, to test the durability of their faith. And their faith, their belief in him was small. It was little. Now it would grow and we would see John continue to show the progression of the faith of the disciples. And this is an encouragement to all of us. None of us have arrived. All of us are growing in our faith, and and what allows our faith to grow are these tests that come along the way. COVID has been a test for us. It has been a test to ask, will our faith grow, or will we seek to alleviate the problems around or surrounding this current trial on our own? Or will we, which is the desire of your preaching team, that we will hit reset and instead of seeing COVID as a dead end, that we'll see it as a divine opportunity for God to do great things. Jesus had a plan. Jesus knew exactly what he was going to do to fix the problem. But what he wanted to do and what he wants to do with each and every one of us is to bring us along in the journey. He sometimes brings us or allows us to get to our end, to our limit, so that when he takes us beyond it, that our faith will grow. So what the disciples have said, all of them, is whatever the answer is, it's too big of a problem to solve. But we're going to see in just a couple moments, in a couple verses, 
that the impossible for man is possible with God. Jesus is going to take some loaves and fishes and he's going to multiply and transform and he's going to address and alleviate the problem without breaking a sweat. Because no problem is too big for Jesus to solve. Do you believe that today? I mean, do you really believe that? That there is no problem too big in your life, whatever you're facing, whatever you're dealing with. Not only does God know it, but God has an answer to address that issue. I love what Jeremiah is reminded of in Jeremiah 32, 27. When the Lord says to him, I am the Lord God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? And the answer of every Christ follower should be an emphatic no. There is nothing too difficult for Jesus. And so we need to run to Jesus. We need to trust in Jesus. We need to give Jesus our problems instead of trying to address them or alleviate them through our own thinking or formulas or ideas because Jesus is the answer. Now notice on the heels of this first important truth is a second important truth. And and what happens here is John brings the camera or the, uh, the, the, the camera image to one particular character. And that character is a character that we don't know about from any of the other Gospels. And so this is a very unique part of the story that only John brings us. And that character is a little boy. Now the text tells us that Andrew is the one, as we've said, who brings the boy. And notice in verse 9 it says, there is a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish. So we are told there's this boy, and, and, and what John tells us is he is not a teenage boy, but a young boy. In the original language, is merely a lad. He's a kid. And he's got a kid's meal, a lunchable, if you really want to put it into modern-day terms. Some crackers and some meats. And he has packed this, and I don't know where his mom and dad are at. We're not told that. But why is it that John brings this out? We're not told. But what we know about Scripture helps us to maybe understand the perspective of what John is thinking. For you Bible students out there, you know that John was the youngest by far of all the disciples. We know this in the way that Jesus interacts with John. And some of the mannerisms of John. We are told that John, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, during the time of the Last Supper, that John reclines onto the chest of Jesus. Now that may seem odd for a grown man to do that to another grown man, but if we're talking about a young kid, then it's something very affectionate and endearing. All Bible scholars believe John is young when Jesus calls him. And we know the truth that John outlives all of the other disciples by many, many years tells us that this is a true fact. So here is John 
telling his story, and his remembrance of the story, of the events, is seen through a younger person. And what may have seemed insignificant to everyone else who would write about this is significant to John. Because I think John is reminded that just as Jesus used this little boy, that he used young John. And he was reminded of his own insignificance amongst the other disciples. But notice that the insignificance isn't just the age of the boy, but the meal. We are told that he has five barley loaves. That that adjective of barley is so important. It's there for a reason. Barley was what poor people used to make their bread. And so whoever this young boy was, we know he was meager in his financial standing. He came from a peasant household because peasants used barley to make their bread. And then the fish, we're not talking about salmon or trout, but probably some sort of pickled sardine that would fill the belly but may not be altogether all that exquisite. And what we see in this of the boy and the meal is of utter importance. Yes, it is true. There is no problem too big for God to solve. But when we go that way, then we begin to think, well, God will take care of all of it. I don't need to be a part of it. But I want to remind you today that there is no person too insignificant to serve. You see, that's the other part of it. That's the flip side of the coin. Yes, our problems are too big for us to solve on our own. We need Jesus. He is the only answer But so often, we think that we've got nothing that we can bring to the table. And in John chapter 6, we are reminded that there is a boy. And though he's insignificant in the world's eyes, though his meal is insignificant, God is going to use it for even greater things. Now what an awesome reminder for all of us in our finiteness in our world of lack. Yes, we do have something we can bring Jesus, but it's meager. And we begin to look at the problems of the world and we say, well, what can I do? I can't address the problems of the world. There's so much pain and so much sorrow and so much poverty. What can I do when my resources are so limited, when I am one of seven billion people? Well, isn't it true that Jesus invites us into the ministry? And yes, we depend on him to empower us to do it, but he asks something of us. The truth of what we learn in the text is that this little boy, though insignificant, would be used by Christ for great things. Now, now. How do we get there? How do we get from being insignificant to being able to do significant things for God? There are two things that have to happen. Number one, the meager things we have have to be transferred to Jesus. Now, 
we don't talk about this in the text, but I think it's quite important and even humorous that this kid doesn't freak out when this big Andrew guy takes his meal and gives it to the speaker that was speaking on the side of the mountain. He could have freaked out. He could have said, hey, listen, I prepared. I was ready. I knew that the preacher always preaches for hours, and I packed myself a lunch. Let's be honest. My mom was smart enough to pack me a lunch. I'm not going to share it with anybody else. I'm hungry myself. But the generosity of this young boy is that he was willing, and we're not told there's any fight over it, that he's willing to hand over what he had, the little he had, to hand it over and put it into Jesus' hands. Now let's just stop there for a moment. That's stewardship. When we talk about giving your time and giving your money and giving your life back to God, what we are seeing in the text is exactly that. Whatever little we have, transferring it back to Jesus, now stay with me, so that Jesus can transform it. Jesus takes this little meal, and we don't know exactly how he did it, but we know that that little meal kept becoming a bigger and bigger meal. As the meal was being handed out, it didn't just serve one boy or two boys or three boys, but 5,000 men and the women and children that were with them. We're talking about thousands upon thousands of people being fed because one boy transferred the little he had into the hands of a multiplying, extraordinary God who would take our meager things so that it could be a blessing to so many more. Listen to me very carefully. You want to see miracles in your world? Start transferring your things, your finite, your meager things into the hands of a supernatural, all-powerful God, and you will watch transformation upon transformation upon transformation. This week in our small group, we were talking about how God has come through for his people. And one of the ladies in our small group said, we could do this forever. Because God has proven that he can take our little things and transform it so that we can be a blessing to so many more. But none of this would have been true if the small boy would have remained selfish. And how sad is it for so many Christ followers who choose to hold on to their meager things instead of transferring them into the hands of God. You wanna see God do great things in your community and in your family and in the lives of your friends? Then be that little boy who gave what he had to God so that God could do what you and I couldn't, and that is transform it so that others' faith could grow. So we see in this text two things. One, there's no problem too big for God to solve. Two, there's no person so insignificant that they can't serve. And what a great reminder for us that we have much to bring to the table when we give what we have to God. 
But there's even a broader theme that's going on in our text today, and it connects John chapter 5 to John chapter 6. You see, in John chapter 5, we've got this argument that's happening as to whether Jesus had the power or the right to heal on the Sabbath. And Jesus begins to answer his critics at the end of John chapter 5, and they start throwing the law of Moses at Jesus. And Jesus says, listen, you want to know who accuses you? It's Moses. Because Moses was the one who talked about me, which is an allusion to Deuteronomy 18.18, where God says, I'm sending one like Moses, but better than Moses, a prophet like no other, who will come and transform the lives of people. And Jesus has come. And Jesus has displayed and showed himself to be uh, the one that the prophets were talking about. He is the Messiah. He came with signs and wonders displayed. And the only thing that people needed to do was believe. And even the patriarchs that they sought so much to defend they would deny men like Moses who were pointing to Jesus. And what Jesus does, and I love this, Jesus doesn't just silence his critics with words, but deeds. Notice, and it's an important element that you understand, and we run right by these things so very quickly. Verse 4, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. Where did the Passover come from? It came from the days of the Exodus. It came from the days of, of Egyptian rule and bondage over the people of Israel. Well, who's around during that time? Moses. And what Jesus does is Jesus reminds the people that he is what they're looking for. Stop looking for Moses and start looking at me, Jesus says. And Jesus proves he's greater than Moses. How? Notice all the connections that happen in this text. If you're in our small group uh, study series, one of the questions was, uh, what's going on that's similar to what Jesus was doing in John chapter 6 as what uh, Moses was doing during the time of the Exodus? And the answer is a ton. Both happen at the time of the Passover. Both Jesus and Moses are leading lots of people. Both Jesus and Moses lead people who are in need. Both Jesus and Moses are leading people who need to be guided. Both Jesus and Moses are leading people who need food. And yes, while it is true that Moses led them and fed them, he did so as a middle agent with God. But what we have here in the multiplying of the loaves and fishes is Jesus showing firsthand his power because he is in fact the son of God. And what he does is he multiplies the loaves and fishes and in doing so, people begin to understand what this is. Notice at the end of the text, it says, 
This indeed is the prophet who was to come into the world. This is the one we've been waiting for. And they see it because of this miracle. What we need to recognize is that there are two basic elements that us as human beings are looking for. Someone to lead us and someone to feed us. That was the need of the people on that day. They were looking for someone to follow and they were looking for food. The sustenance of the temporary and the leading towards the eternal. And that's true of us as human beings. We have two elements of who we are. The the, uh, material part and the immaterial part makes up the composition of who we are as individuals. And we long to find those desires, to satisfy those desires on our own or in the lives of other people. But what this miracle tells us is, is that Jesus is the answer that addresses our biggest need. What is the biggest need? There is no hunger pang too deep that Jesus can't satisfy. You're looking for someone to lead you. You're looking for someone to feed you. Jesus is the answer. And that's true from a physical standpoint, and it's true from a spiritual standpoint. Now, Jesus will address this later on, and I don't want to steal from Pastor Steve's message next week when he talks about that he is the bread of life and that we should not labor for that which perishes, but labor for that which is eternal. But, but let me just keep us where we're at right now. You and I have a need, and I want you to know that that need has multiple symptoms And if we were to poll everybody, those symptoms would be huge. Some will be power, some will be prestige, some will be pleasure, some will be position in life. All of these things that we long for. And I want you to know that whatever you're longing for right now, whatever you're searching for in this world right now, is never going to be filled in your own striving. It will never be filled by anybody else but, listen to me, Jesus alone. The feeding of the 5,000 reminds us of an incredible truth that all of Scripture proclaims and that Jesus is what we are looking for. And so, my friends, where are you going to put your faith? Where are you going to turn when problems come? What are you going to do when you feel so insignificant in this world? Will you try to fix it on your own? Will you look to some other counterfeit, someone other human being that is finite just like you? Or will you turn to the one who multiplied loaves and fishes, who changed water into wine, who healed from a distance a sick nobleman's son, who raised up a lifelong paralytic, who once raised the dead, and who himself, by the power of his Father in heaven, after being crucified on a cross, dying for man's sin, would raise himself from the dead and 
who is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Who are you going to believe in? Yourself? Someone else? Or Jesus? The answer to our desire. My hope and my prayer is that we continue to walk through these amazing miracles that our faith would grow and that we would depend all the more on the one in whom all things are possible.